We read God's Word tonight in two places in the New Testament. First of all, we'll read from John chapter 15, the first 17 verses. That's on page 1676 in the Pew Bibles, page 1676. John 15, beginning at verse 1, let us listen to God's word, word as he speaks to us. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete." My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. Then we're going to read also just three verses from a familiar passage, Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 through 10, it's on page 819 in the Pew Bibles, page 819. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. And there we read, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. May the Lord bless our reading and hearing of His Word this evening. I also invite you to turn with me in the back of the Psalter hymnal to page 31, page 31, where we have three questions that are asked in Lord's Day 24 about what might be called the role and place of good works in the life of the Christian. Lord's Day 24. If you're willing, I'll read the question, and I invite you, we'll say it together by way of response in unison. 
Why can't the good we do make us right with God or at least help make us right with Him? Because the righteousness which can pass God's scrutiny must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. Even the very best we do in this life is imperfect and stained with sin. And then this question, how can you say that the good we do doesn't earn anything when God promises to reward it in this life and the next? This reward is not earned, it is a gift of grace. And one last question, but doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I said a moment ago the questions that we just read are prompted in the Word of God by its teaching regarding good works. And you know, of course, that the question of the role and place of good works in the life of the Christian is an inescapable and also a perennial question. Uh, I can still remember one time hearing a sermon by Dr. D. James Kennedy at Coral Ridge, PCA in Florida, in which he said, all the religions of the world can be summarized in one word all the religions with the exception of the Christian faith. And what's the word? An imperative. This is what you have to do. If you do this, and then here's the program, this are, these are your obligations. You will make yourself acceptable thereby and presentable to God, and so you will be saved by your good works. The Christian faith, however, he suggested, Likewise can be summarized in one word, and you can almost guess what that word is. Done. It's all done. Now, we saw that this morning. By the blood of Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. Like one who dies and in his last will and testament declares us to be his blood-bought people, all that is mine is yours, freely given, freely given received. But you know, of course, that that's a teaching that is constantly under attack. I was struck not so long ago. I read a, a striking piece by, of all people, I don't know if you remember or know, Garrison Keeler, Prairie Home Companion, author of the Lake Wobegon books, uh, an interesting fellow, we'll not talk about him very much, but he made this interesting remark. He said, you know, funerals nowadays are interesting. The deceased are so glorified by way of eulogizing that I'm rather sorry I'm going to miss my funeral by a few hours. <laughs> I won't get to hear all the wonderful things they're going to say about me, forgetful of anything that might count against me. And I think what he was getting at is what R.C. Sproul once put rather strikingly when he said, most contemporaries believe in a doctrine of what he called justification by death. How does one obtain heaven and the reward of heaven? Well, you need only die. 
the very thought that anyone, if there is a God and there is a heaven, would not welcome any and all without exception is altogether unacceptable and displeasing in our day. But you know, of course, there's also another reason why this question of good works is inescapable. It's suggested in the third question of Lord's Day 24. Doesn't the teaching that not by works but by grace alone through faith. A man or a woman is saved for the sake of Christ and Christ alone. Doesn't that make people careless and indifferent? Won't that become the occasion for people to say, well, as Paul puts it, anticipating this objection, why not then sin that grace may abound? The greater the sinner, the more I sin and offend against God's majesty, the more remarkable it is that he should nonetheless save me for the sake of Christ. And so you see, there's always this sort of twofold question that arises when we speak of good works in the life of the Christian. Do they contribute anything to my salvation? No, they do not. Why? And on the other hand, the problem, if I say it's by grace alone then why should I do anything at all? If it's all done, there's nothing left for me to do. And so that's our question tonight. We want to consider it in the light of the Scripture passages and teaching of the Word of God that we read. There are three things that the Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism says by way of answering these issues pertaining to our good works. I put it in the form, my theme is, of what good are our good works? And the first thing we're told is they cannot possibly justify or contribute to our acceptance with God. They're utterly inadequate to the task. Not only that, uh, they try to do what has already been done. That's the first thing. They're inadequate to justify. The second thing is, they are nonetheless recognized by God as a work of His own grace in us by the Spirit, and He rewards them. But that reward is not merited. He doesn't give us what we exactly deserve. He gives us more. It's a reward of grace. He does reckon with our works. We're judged according to works. But the very works God rewards that He sees in His children are works rewarded by grace. And then lastly, it's simply impossible. It's illogical. It turns everything upside down for one who is saved by grace for the work of, sake of the work of Christ alone that they should not by His Spirit engrafted into Christ bear fruits that are fruits not of endeavoring to obtain God's favor, but fruits, as the confession puts it, of thankfulness. First of all, why are they inadequate to justify? Obviously, Lord's Day 24 follows 23. And I know I'm an interloping pastor, and you haven't been considering at any of your Lord's Day services uh, in the sequence of the Lord's Day, maybe you, you're getting some catechism sermons. I don't even know where you're at. I surely hope you're not at this point if you're in the catechism. But uh, 
This follows fast on the heels of Lord's Day 23, which tells us what the Word of God teaches so emphatically in a text like Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, the whole of it, you're being saved by grace through faith. This, all of it, is God's gift. Not by works, so that no one can what? Boast. If it were even in the smallest measure, 80% God's grace, 20% my supplementing and completing the good beginning that God made for me in Jesus Christ, but it wasn't quite enough. Now, very emphatically, we're told, and that's really what Lord's Day 23 has already taught, we are, all of us, heirs of eternal life, righteous in Christ, right with God, for the sake of that work Christ performed on our behalf, His perfect satisfaction upon the cross, his doing all the things required of him in fulfilling the obligations of God's holy law, the the whole of Christ's obedience under the law has been granted to us and is received by us through the empty hand of faith. So that, and here's the point, Our sins are not only forgiven for Christ's sake, but God sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ as He sees His own dear beloved Son. I always tell my students the biblical teaching regarding justification is not adequately expressed under the formula. We sometimes teach the catechism students this. It's just as though you had never sinned. Now, it's better than that. It's better than that. It's just as though the perfect righteousness and obedience under the law of Christ, as though it were mine and I had done it. And one of the interesting things about the confession at this point is when it says, why can't the good we do make us right with God, or at least help make us right with Him? It says, because the righteousness which can pass God's scrutiny must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. Even the very best we do in this life is imperfect and stained with sin. Now, there's something we often miss here. That answer doesn't say that we do no good works. It acknowledges and recognizes that we bear fruit and do works in gratitude to God by the working of His Spirit. But it tells us they're not such as could possibly justify us because God doesn't grade on the curve. Now, my students in seminary would prefer that I would occasionally grade on the curve, show them some mercy and not strict merit. I remember I had a student once, he actually hailed from this area, I shall not tell you his name, but he came rather unhappily into the classroom one day, and he threw his test on the desk. And he says to me and the rest of the class so that they can hear it, what does it take to get an A in this class? Well, and I was quick on my retort on that particular occasion, more quick than usual. I said, A work. 
You got a B minus because you did B minus work. Now remember what I said a moment ago. God, when he sees us in Christ, thinks we're just right. We've done it all, even as he did it all, and it's become ours by his gracious bestowal. He's as pleased with you as he is with his own son. You get a straight A, maybe an A plus, if there were such a thing. It isn't that he doesn't recognize that you've done some things along the way that were not perfect, that were even worthy, as we'll see in a moment, of his commendation and a gracious reward. Not a harsh taskmaster. And yet, why would you come into his presence with your little bag? (laughs) You could fit it easily in the carry-on. It wouldn't be a big trunk full of good works, but a few uh, bits of this and that. Uh, All of it a little tattered around the edges and say, well, here, this is what I would like to offer to you, Lord, in addition to what Christ has done. Now, take your delight. Make your boast in the presence of God and others in Christ and Christ only. And though the confession doesn't say it at this particular point, so soon as you do anything other, you know where you're going to end up. You won't have, as Paul says in Romans 5, peace with God. I've been a pastor long enough to know that Reformed people in Reformed churches, when they face the reality of their own death, sometimes tremble and are fearful of the prospect that it's appointed for us to die. And after that comes the judgment. And you know why? They've let the devil insinuate into their conscience the notion that I have to do at least something, and when I look at what I've done, wow, it's not as impressive a resume as I would like. And then they begin to tremble. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8? It's God who justifies, and he does so for the sake of Christ. Who is it then that condemns? So it doesn't deny our confession that we do good works, but it makes it very clear that as it relates to our standing in the presence of God and the inheritance that is ours in Christ, it can't possibly be on the basis of anything we have done. And yet, there comes another question. How can you say that the good we do doesn't earn anything? I just said that. How can you say that? When God promises to reward it in this life and in the next. And you know, we haven't time tonight to consider all the places in the Word of God where that's taught us. There are passages in Paul's epistle where it says elders who serve well and labor hard in the gospel, they'll receive a crown of righteousness that'll never fade away, not like one of those uh, hibiscus. Yes, that's what they are. Beautiful flowers, but they're gone in a day. (laughs) We love to have them. I got them in our backyard, but... Boy, they don't last very long. But the crown of righteousness that God will grant his faithful servants never fades. It's a perpetually glorious symbol of his taking note of and commending his people, his servants, for their work. And we're told in the Word of God, Matthew 16, for the Son of Man, when he comes in the glory of his Father with his angels, will reward every man according to his works. 
We're told again in Romans 2, 6, Paul writes, who will render? God will render to every man according to his deeds. Or again, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8, everyone will receive his own reward according to his own labor. If that weren't enough, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, very familiar, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. So the Scriptures teach that God, like a father, sees what we do, pays attention to the work of His own grace in us. By the way, did you notice what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10? The works we do are the very works for which we have been graciously and mercifully by God Himself, the Master artisan and craftsman who, are, who has made us his handiwork, created us in Christ Jesus to walk in good works, but through the very works which he in his grace has prepared for us to walk in them. That's what our Lord is teaching also in John chapter 15. That's why I read that passage. Whatever we work, works we do, it's by virtue of being ingrafted like a branch in the vine, receiving its strength and sustenance from Christ Himself. It's Christ at work in us that accounts for these works. And yet the interesting thing is that that reward is never meted out by a strict standard of justice. There's a very interesting word of our Lord in the Gospel of Luke. I didn't read it. I thought about reading it earlier, but I'll read it now. In Luke 17, verse 7, we read these words of our Lord. Suppose one of you had a servant. He was plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field at the end of the day, come along now and sit down to eat at my table and not in the servant's quarters? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, wait on me while I eat and drink, after that you may eat and drink? It reminds me a little bit of that Downton Abbey I mentioned this morning where the servants always eat downstairs. They don't think to come upstairs where the master of the house, together with his family, are sitting at a very fancy, well-dressed table. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So also you, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. Why do I read that passage? How does God treat us in His grace through Christ? Not as a servant, but as a dear friend, as a beloved son or daughter. And when he sees what we do, even though we never do all of our duty, he doesn't send us to the servants' quarters. He prepares a table for us. He invites us to sit at that table together. And no one is honored above anyone else. They're all honored. I don't know what you think. I sometimes get a little about it when I see these people with their, although I'm a grandfather now, so I kind of feel that way sometimes too. You know, my grandson is an honor student, and well, you fill in the blank. 
Or my daughter, you know, she did this. You know how grandparents can be? Oh, they're painful to listen because they're all the time celebrating the accomplishments of their grandchildren. I hold a candle to no one on this. I do it too. What's going on there? They love their children. And I don't think there's a grandparent in this room who could possibly say that they don't love their grandchildren almost more than their own children. You have more time to love them. And you celebrate their accomplishments. I remember one time we, my wife is a piano student, and so she has a recital in the spring for all the students from the little ones on up. And you know how it is. It doesn't always go so well, and everybody's sitting on the edge of the bench. Are they going to get through the piece? You know, are they going to manage it? And how well will they do? Well, I still always remember one time on one of these occasions, one of the grandmothers came up to me afterward at the coffee time, and she said, did you notice? I said, what? What do you mean? My granddaughter, she said, she played her piece like no other perfectly. Ooh, I thought, I better check with my wife. She's the teacher. She knows what's up to standard, what will pass muster. So I said to her, well, how was it? Eh, it wasn't exactly, um, it was okay, but it wasn't great. You know what's going on there? If you love someone, you care about them. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? Love hopes all things. Love perseveres. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Don't even see them. Blind to the wrongs. So it is with our Father. Well, he's not entirely blind. He's not pleased when we don't do what he wants done. But neither is he a harsh taskmaster when by his Spirit he sees the work of his grace in us in those works that we do, though imperfect. He takes note of them. He delights in them. He registers and he rewards. But it's not a reward of strict merit by a harsh master, but it's the gracious and kindly I don't like that when people are always talking about grandparents as being pushovers as it relates to the grandchildren. It's sometimes true, I suppose, but we can learn something. Uh, sometimes we as grandparents think back when we had children, our children, and we think to ourselves, we were trying too hard to make them, you know, fit the mold and do all the stuff that they needed to do. Would that we had spent a little more time with them and been a little more long-suffering. Usually what happens is the first child gets the strictest upbringing, and then we, we relax a little bit as the younger ones come after us. The point of all this is to say, yes, God delights in the works that He, by His grace, accomplishes in us, and He rewards them. But it's not a reward of merit, but a reward of grace. But then there's one last thing, and it's this. Doesn't this still, at the end of the day, when you're all finished, as long as I get across the finish line, and even though I don't do much of anything, and the reward is meager, doesn't this kind of teaching make people indifferent and wicked? And the answer is very simple. No, it's impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. 
And there's a sense in which that answer can only be understand, understood by a Christian. Because to be a Christian is to be by faith one who has received everything by God's grace. Who knows what Jesus says in John 15. I, you didn't choose me, I chose you. But I chose you for a purpose. Not only to receive my favor, but that you would bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Fruit that counts for this life and the life to come. I can remember that idea of branches in the vine. When I first was a pastor in California, we had, they had planted this two, double row of beautiful new roses. And it was my task to tend the roses. I sometimes said to the congregation, the roses are easier to tend than the congregation. I get more immediate results. But in case what I'm really getting at, I asked a, a gardener in our congregation, a fellow who worked with plants, I said, what do I do with these roses? Feed them. You can't feed them too much. Water them. Can't water them too much. If you water and feed them, nourish them, they'll produce. And sure enough, that's the way it is with roses. That's also the way it is with God's people. If you're grafted into Christ through faith, you draw your strength from the vine. And though you may not be perfect, it will be evident to yourself and to others that you are abiding in Christ. I can remember once someone telling me about some parents who had visited uh, their newly wedded son and his bride. And the father was watching this son of theirs acting rather strangely. What do I mean? He was helping with the dishes. He was asking his dear wife, what can I do, dear? And he said to his wife, who is this? What's going on? Oh, she said, that's what love will do. God's people know that. If you embrace everything that is yours in Christ, you're not going to run off and continue to do your own thing. You're going to seek to serve and to do what you know is pleasing to Him and not what you formerly did outside of Christ. I can remember, now I, all these things come and popping into my head. That's one of the, the dangers of the old minister. <laughs> Gets more illustrative, illustrative material. But one last illustration. I can remember one time I lived in northwest Iowa and taught at Mid-America before we moved to this area for seven years. I don't know if some of you remember, there was this amazing uh, plane crash at the airport in Sioux City. A large boat, I don't know if it was a DC-10 or it was a, it was a very large with some hundreds, three, four hundred people on board. Well, the pilot lost all of his controls and had but one engine. And so he managed somehow or another to figure out how to maneuver that huge jet over the cornfields. I can remember seeing the jet because it took him some time, an hour or two, to bring it down. And it catapulted across the runway. He didn't perfectly land the plane. But he did well enough 
that people were seeing after the accident walking out of the cornfield alive. Now, the point of that story is I, I still can see it as this father and mother at the microphone whose children had been on the plane. And through tears they said, I cannot thank that pilot enough for saving our children. That's the point the confession is making. It's impossible for somebody saved by that kind of Savior not to bear fruits which bubble up of thanksgiving. It's just not possible. Now notice, nothing there about, well, you do actually have to do something in order to be saved. (laughs) You know, bring it in through the back door. No, no. It's purely and solely out of gratitude for salvation granted by grace alone. That's the true motivator. That's the real engine that drives us to do good works. May it be so in your life and in mine, and may we demonstrate and always be mindful that we know ourselves to be undeservedly the beneficiaries of a saving grace that is amazing, always amazing, right? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us to have a good, a biblical view of the role and place of good works in our lives. They're they're not such as are done in order to justify us or as those works that could justify us. And yet they're works that you accomplish in us as we're grafted into Christ and they show your grace powerfully sanctifying us that you note, that you delight in, that you even graciously reward. Works of overflowing thankfulness for all that we've received. May that be true and evident also in us for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing as our